Good evening. We have two absolutely appalling stories for you this evening, both related to the Home Office. So one, the story I'm sure you will have heard about, the astonishing number of children who have gone missing from hotels, asylum seeker children, Home Office complete dereliction of duty. Also, um, more revelations from the Metropolitan Police about sexual abuse. I mean, it, it just keeps getting worse and worse. The second half of the show, we're going to be talking about Westminster stories. So the continued row going on about Nadim Zahawi. And we're just finding out more and more and more when it comes to the BBC and how mired it seems to be in Tory scandals. It, it can't really position itself as a sort of external neutral arbiter when it's so involved as it currently is. I'm going to be joined all evening by Dahlia Gabriel. Um, before we get going, just a quick mention that today was the first ever official strike in the UK for Amazon workers. The strike is taking place at the Coventry Warehouse over pay and conditions, where workers even claim that their toilet breaks are timed. We won't be discussing the story in detail on tonight's show, but do keep an eye on our channel tomorrow as our Labour correspondent, Polly Smythe, will have a video report for you. The Home Office has long been using hotels to accommodate thousands of asylum seekers. That follows an increase in the number of people arriving by small boats, but it's also because of repeated Home Office failures to properly manage their own processing centres. That led to a number of crises last year in places like Manston. Now, amongst those being sent to hotels are unaccompanied children, and it has now been revealed that a lot of them are simply disappearing. Minister for Immigration Robert Jenrick appeared in Parliament to answer an urgent question on the disappearances. The rise in small boat crossings has placed a severe strain on the asylum accommodation system. We've had no alternative but to temporarily use specialist hotels to give some unaccompanied minors a roof over their heads whilst local authority accommodation is found. Mr Speaker, we've no power to detain unaccompanied asylum-seeking children in these settings, and we know some do go missing. Over 4,600 unaccompanied children have been, accompanied, have been accommodated in hotels since July 2021. There have been 440 missing occurrences, and 200 children remain missing, 13 of whom are under 16 years old, and only one is female. When any child goes missing, a multi-agency missing persons protocol is mobilised alongside the police and relevant local authority to establish their whereabouts and to ensure that they are safe. Many of those who have gone missing are subsequently traced and located. Of the unaccompanied asylum-seeking children still missing, 88% are Albanian nationals. The remaining 12% are from Afghanistan, Egypt, India, Vietnam, Pakistan, and Turkey. So the Home Office's own figures reveal that of the 4,600 unaccompanied children housed in hotels since 2021, 440 have gone missing. That's just about one in 10 of them. And around 200 of them are still missing today. But where are they going? The Observer has published an investigation into the children who have gone missing from one hotel in Hove. They spoke to a whistleblower who works for the subcontracting firm Mitty. They told the paper this. Most of the children disappear into county lines. The Albanian and Eritrean gangs pick them up in their BMWs and Audis and then they just vanish. We've raised the issue many times, but nothing much has changed. 
The Home Office says, quote, it's not true that unaccompanied children were being kidnapped from its hotels. A spokesperson told The Guardian this, the well-being of children in our care is an absolute priority. Robust safeguarding procedures are in place to ensure all children and minors in care are as safe and supported as possible as we seek urgent placements with a local authority. In the concerning occasion when a child goes missing, local authorities work closely with agencies, including the police, to urgently establish their whereabouts. The ICIBI in October found the young people in accommodation unanimously reported feeling safe, happy, and were treated with respect. That's a picture that the Labour MP for Hove, Peter Kyle, doesn't recognise. In the Commons, he challenged Jenrick's claim that unaccompanied children were housed in specialist hotels. The community I represent here was given just a couple of hours' notice that 96 unaccompanied children were going to be placed in a hotel in the community I represent here. I did visit that hotel within the days afterwards, and I visited many times since. So I can say that to suggest that these are specialist facilities mm. is ignorant. Exactly. Yeah. In the days afterwards, I saw for myself, having met the children who were there, that some of them were extremely vulnerable. Mm. Vulnerable themselves emotionally and vulnerable if they should leave the premises to being coerced into crime. Yeah. So I contacted the council, I contacted the police, I contacted the social services, I contacted his department, the Home Office. Mm. The only organisation that responded, I believe, effectively and with the kind of seriousness that you would expect, was Sussex Police. But they lacked the facilities and the resources and the powers to do the job that needed to be done. It is incorrect to say these children are not being coerced into crime because just last year, Sussex police pursued a car that had collected two children from outside this hotel. When they managed to uh, get, get the car to safety, they released two child migrants and they arrested one of the members that was driving it, who was a gang leader who was there to coerce the children into crime. So I accept that if one of the uncomfortable truth for us is if one child who was related to one of us in this room went missing, the world would stop. But in the community I represent, a child has gone missing, then five went missing, then a dozen went missing, then 50 went missing, and currently today, 76 are missing and nothing is happening. So my question to the minister is, when I visit the hotel the next time in the coming days, what will be different there than went before? Because if nothing is different, they are going to continue to go missing. That was Peter Carl, MP for Hove, where many of these children have gone missing. And the missing unaccompanied children came up in Prime Minister's questions as well, with Labour's Tulip Sadiq asking this. As a trustee of the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust, this week, I was honored to hear from Leah Lesser, a Holocaust survivor who came to this country by herself at the age of eight because her parents believe that the UK was a safe haven for vulnerable children. <laughs> this week, I also read the government's own statistics, which said that there are 200 asylum-seeking, unaccompanied children who are missing from hotels in the UK. Ministers have admitted that they have no idea about the whereabouts of these children. So could I ask the Prime Minister, does he still think that the UK is a safe haven for vulnerable children? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you can hear some shouting from the Tory benches at the end there. One of those voices belongs to Tory MP Jonathan Gullis. You couldn't quite hear what he was saying, but Peter Carl could. Shortly after that debate, he posted this on social media. 
Tulip Sadiq asked the Prime Minister about the welfare of 200 unaccompanied migrant children who've gone missing. Tory MP Jonathan Gullis heckles, quote, well, they shouldn't have come here illegally. And Peter Carl says, just when you've heard it all, the Tory party find a new low. Earlier today, I spoke to Lou Calvi, a refugee and asylum specialist. I began by asking her how we can know if these missing children have been kidnapped against their will or if they might have voluntarily absconded. We know the asylum system in the UK is brutal. It's incredibly punishing. And the rhetoric that's being whipped up by government currently with with deeply punitive measures such as Rwanda, incarceration in detention centres, people being forced to live in real poverty in the asylum system is enough to make a person want to abscond from that system in and of itself. And certainly, you know, these hotels have been around for about 18 months. This is, although gruesome, this is not a surprise to any of the experts or specialists that have been working in this field. We have known for a long time that these risk factors were around particularly unaccompanied children hotels. The bottom line is children shouldn't be placed in hotels. We, we, we know this. There are lots of risks attached to it, particularly when you've got the details and the locations of those hotels being released in the public domain. That massively increases the risks of those children at those hotels. So we've known for a while there were lots of risks around these hotels. We've suspected that children were going missing. We found it really difficult to get any information from the statutory authorities around it. What I think is different about the information that was released at the weekend, this came from a whistleblower attached to one of the commissioned providers in those hotels. The Home Office commissioned some level of support and provision within those hotels. It was one of the whistleblowers within that hotel environment that disclosed that children were being taken by predators around the hotels. The report referenced children being bundled into cars. And just yesterday, we saw the MP for Brighton and Hove stand up and say that he was aware, that he had witnessed and been aware that these were children being taken, not children absconding. I would imagine amongst the number that we're talking about, there will be some level of children volunteering to leave the asylum system and reunifying with family members. Um, I would imagine that there are some children leaving the asylum system and going into exploitative working practices, working in the black market. And I would imagine that there's a significant number that are being proactively preyed upon by exploiters and traffickers. So I I, I think the truth is somewhere in, in, in the middle of all of those factors. So those children who are still missing, there's also children who were missing who have now been located. I'm not sure if they've been brought back to the hotels. I don't know how much we know about them, but I suppose that could maybe give us an indication of what has happened to the children who are still missing. So I suppose of the ones that the Home Office has now found, do we have an idea of what kind of experience they've been through? Are these people who have been sort of trafficked into a gang and then rescued, or are these people who absconded briefly and then came back? Do we, do we know anything about them at all? We just don't have that information, and certainly we're, we're really struggling to gain that information. I think these, this is critical information. This is critical information to A, recovering the remainder of those children, and B, preventing further losses of children's lives through these practices. So these are exactly the questions we want to be asking. These are exactly the information we need to know. And it, it feels like at the moment what we're getting is a lot of radio silence. 
I watched that debate in Parliament yesterday and, and, and Robert Jenrick's response was, well, let's go and visit a hotel. That's just not good enough. Why can't you give us that information? Why can't those steps and measures be held up to scrutiny, both within Parliament and, and with some of the experts that are in and around these hotels? I think the thing to note about the hotels is that they weren't set up in a planned way. They weren't set up in communication and dialogue with the specialist services that exist around unaccompanied asylum-seeking children. They were set up at a rush. They were flung at local authorities by the Home Office. And I feel for local authorities in this because they've had very little consultation or discussion with the Home Office about those hotels being opened. Uh, in many areas, the local authorities have been deeply unhappy about the hotels. They've been in inappropriate environments. They haven't had adequate support infrastructure and services around them. But critically, the Home Office have not done this in collaboration with any of the specialist services that exist. So that's why I think we're really struggling for information. There seems to be a bit of a, a veil of secrecy around this. And it shouldn't have taken 18 months for this, uh, these problems to have come to light. When you look at the figures, we're talking about around 10% of unaccompanied asylum-seeking children that have gone missing over the last 18 months. That's quite staggering and fairly terrifying. That's not a surprise to the government. That's not a surprise to the Home Office. They must have been realising the scale of this problem as those previous 18 months have progressed. Government figures have been keen and regularly point out that this is 88% of the children who have gone missing are Albanian. I mean, what do you think is the relevance of, of that statistic that we keep being told? I think from a government perspective, it's relevant to what appears to be a campaign of anti-migrant rhetoric towards Albanian people. We've seen this narrative around Albania take hold of small boat crossings, this narrative that Albanian people that arrive in the UK should be removed immediately to Albania because they can't possibly have a protection need. And so I think they're keen to carry that narrative through to this discussion around missing children. We saw today in PMQs, apparently, there was some deeply offensive comments from one of the Conservative MPs while a question was being asked around unaccompanied, missing unaccompanied children. Apparently the reference was that they shouldn't have come here illegally then. So somehow they deserve this. So I think this narrative around the Albanian nationality has become such so toxic politically by design that there's real attempts to draw this narrative again across the discussion around missing children. The bottom line is, Albania as a country has significant protection factors around it. Albania is one of the top three countries, uh, nationalities within the NRM. The NRM is the referral mechanism that the UK has to protect survivors of trafficking. Albania represents one of the top three nationalities within the NRM. So that means it's one of the top three nationalities of, of survivors of trafficking in the UK. We know by the, by the government's own guidance, their own country guidance, 
specifies that Albania has significant protection factors around blood feuds. The GRT community in Albania has significant protection factors, and we know that it's a significant trafficking country. So it's understandable that it would represent a significant nationality group within our protection system. But it's this narrative that it's not a country that has any risks attached to it. And it's just simply untrue. For some people in Albania, they absolutely do need safety in the UK. And we're talking again, whatever nationality we're talking about, these are children, children that have gone missing due to neglect from our government, placed them in precarious situations, knowing that there are risk factors circling around these children. And from what I've seen and heard, there's been very few steps taken to recover these children and prevent further losses. That was Lou Calvi speaking to me earlier today. Moving on to our next story. Earlier this month, serving Metropolitan Police Officer David Carrick was convicted of 49 charges of rape, sexual assault, coercive control and false imprisonment. And now, a second officer had admitted to a string of sexual offences against children, including grooming young girls. PC Hussain Chahab admitted to four counts of sexual activity with a girl aged between 13 and 15, three counts of making indecent photographs of a child and one of engaging in sexual communication with a child. He joined the force in 2019. And some of these offences were committed while he was a safer schools officer attached to a secondary school in Enfield. The Met have already identified around 1,000 officers who were allowed to stay on in the force even after allegations of sexual or domestic abuse were made against them. And following Chahab's conviction, Metropolitan Police Commissioner Mark Rowley appeared before the London Assembly where he revealed something even more disturbing. How many are there outside of that thousand, such as the case we've had today, that you know are going through the justice system that we might see coming out in the coming weeks and months? Uh, So, I mean, looking at this of just the next few weeks ahead, um, uh, most, most weeks there's two or three officers going to court for um, criminal cases, um, which tends to be a, a mix of sort of dishonesty, violence, and sort of violence against women and girls type mm-hmm. offences, domestic abuse, sexual offences, etc. So there's probably two or, three a, two or three a week that are sort of appearing at court. It's hard to know when these cases will come to conclusion mm-hmm. because sometimes they leap forward um, because something that was a, a court process hearing, all of a sudden someone decides to change and plead to guilty. So exactly when these cases are finalised isn't always clear. Um, but there's a, there's, a, there's a trickle of them, and we're going to be surfacing more, as I said earlier. Of course, of course you are, but there's already two or three a week you're expecting yeah. to come out, which is horrific. Riley went on to say this, we haven't applied the same sense of ruthlessness to guarding our own integrity that we routinely apply to confronting criminals, and I'm deeply sorry for that. Lifting the stone and revealing painful truths will not be resolved overnight, and I mustn't pretend it will do, and I hope you understand that that can't be done. We have to prepare for more painful stories as we confront the issues that we face. I think the idea that they adopt ruthlessness when they're applying and confronting criminals, I think many people will disagree with, considering, you know, it seems that they don't investigate most crimes anymore for some reason. You'll have to ask a representative of the police why that doesn't happen. Dahlia. That was quite shocking, wasn't it? That intervention is essentially saying you can expect for the foreseeable future 
for there to be two or three of these cases where you're hearing about a police officer who's convicted some kind of crimes. He's saying some of them might be to do with dishonesty. I suppose that sort of encapsulates fraud, presumably. But he's saying that many of them will include violence against women, rape, sexual assault, crimes such as those. It seems like it might be a bit never-ending, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think that it is really important in this moment where, you know, we're having this kind of public interrogation into the police to understand that the police haven't woken up one morning and decided to take a good hard look at themselves. You know, the fact that the police are just even slightly being held to account for problems that most people who work in and around criminal justice have been fully aware of and and have been trying to make people aware of for a really long time, which is about, you know, the harms that police do to the public. The reason that we're seeing some of that coming into light in this quite shocking, but also very overdue way is because of, you know, organizers and campaigns, often of campaigns run by people who are themselves people who have been harmed by the police or are relatives of those who have been harmed by the police. So people in the throes of grief, often in the throes of trauma, who who have campaigned to try and bring light to this and, you know, who haven't necessarily had a lot of support from the rest of the progressive movement. Um, And so I think you know, just to kind of like take a bird's eye view on this, it's important in moments like this to see like, oh, like this is actually like how change happens, right? Change happens not by triangulating what already exists, but by actually trying to push beyond what we already have. And that often makes you unpopular. It often makes you, you know, politically stigmatized, but that's actually how we got here. So I think it's really important to not just look at this as like, oh my God, the police are suddenly waking up to all these problems. They've known that these problem have, problems have existed. Campaigning groups have tried to bring attention and accountability. It's just that we had to reach that critical mass to actually push this into the public sphere. And now they don't have um, a choice. But again, this kind of idea that like, oh, you know, policing as a broad institution works. And this is just an example of it making mistakes or not working as well as it should have, I think is a really... That's the analysis that the police give us, but it's not the analysis that we should undertake because it's important to understand that policing doesn't have, you know, you say, why don't they investigate crime anymore? Policing doesn't have the tools to actually do what we are told they're meant to do. And it's not because of austerity. It's not because they don't have enough money. It's because policing as a concept and an institution doesn't actually overall prevent harm and it doesn't even do much to help people heal from harm once harm has taken place. Like for example, I think the fact that this cop was in the Safer Schools program is a perfect example of that because basically the Safer Schools program is a program that is about putting police officers into schools that are deemed to be problem schools, right? So obviously this is largely schools with a lot of working class kids and disproportionately with um, black and minority ethnic kids. And there's this idea that, you know, these schools have a problem with drugs, they have a problem with violence, they have a problem with crime. And the way to kind of deal with that is to put a cop in each of these schools. Now, firstly, you can't tell me that there's not a problem of drugs and all of that happening in Eton, but that's, you know, a different story. But even still, even if there is a problem, you know, of violence or of drugs or whatever in these schools, the reason that there's a problem there is like poverty. It's poverty. It's more often than not 
generational and community trauma. That's why we have these issues. Putting a police officer in these schools, um, not only to, to cause harm in this way, but also let's not forget that story about, you know, that cop who was in one of these safer schools programs that strip searched, I believe it was a 14-year-old girl, child Q, because she smelled of weed, right? So this whole idea that like policing with it, with its logic of punishment and surveillance, particularly of marginalized, of only a particular segment of the population, the idea that they help to prevent harm and they help people to heal from harm, they do the precise and exact opposite. A lot of the issues that we are told policing is there to, to resolve are social and economic issues that, you know, the threat of putting someone in a cage for 20 years neither prevents nor helps heal from. And so I think that this is a really important, like when we see these moments where it's like, you know, there seems to be this massive cognitive dissonance and this massive contradiction between what we're told the police are supposed to do and, you know, what they actually do, instead of thinking, okay, well then what we need to do is just apply the police's tactics to themselves. Actually, we should take the contradiction and look at it as like, this is actually the point. And that the thing that we are told that the policing are needed for and what the actual effects of policing are, are not incidental, but are actually, you know, they're actually, there's actually a, a, a systemic reason why policing doesn't deliver on its promise. And it's because it's not designed to in that sense. And, you know, when we look at actually what the overall impact that policing has done to society, it's essentially giving a group of people the state-backed authority to surveil and brutalize and incarcerate particular groups of people in ways that are by, by definition very difficult to hold them accountable for because the whole point is that they're supposed to be avatars of the law. So it's very difficult to hold them accountable. Part of the way they justify themselves is that they don't need to be scrutinized. But also, it, policing generally creates cycles of violence and harm within communities. You know, people who are sentenced to jail are more likely to commit violence when they leave prison than those who, for example, are sentenced to um, probation. People who have violent encounters with the police are traumatized by that. And that creates a knock-on effect throughout their lives. And so when we see the police doing, doing things that they are supposed to be there to protect us from, it's not hypocrisy. It's kind of a culturally and systemically embedded consequence of a contradiction that is at the heart of, of modern policing in itself. We disagree on this. I mean, you can say there's a contradiction, so therefore let's get rid of the police. I mean, I'd say it's probably an, an internal tension. You know, we as a society need some people to enforce the rules, but the people who enforce the rules, there's going to be a sort of inherent tendency for them to become a little bit unaccountable because of the power you give them. You know, power corrupts, but we still need some people to have some power. You know, it's, uh, I see it as a, as a tension that we need to constantly be aware of as opposed to a reason to get rid of the whole thing. But that's a very long debate. I suppose I, I, I maybe want to challenge you on one thing you said there, where I, I feel like you're saying this reckoning is happening because there was a critical mass amongst movements who were demanding something quite radical and we've met in the middle and now there's a movement for police reform. Now, to me, it seems like the timeline is more that there have been a lot of people, generally marginalized people, a lot of women who've been abused by police officers, their complaints haven't been taken seriously or they've been dissuaded from reporting them. Then there was a horrific murder of Sarah Everard, which was so shocking that the police couldn't ignore it anymore. And the fact that that got a lot of publicity encouraged lots of women to come forward and then their complaints were taken more seriously because there was more visibility of the misdeeds of police officers. 
Now, you know, potentially on the margins, there was some impact that radical movements had. But it seems to me this, you know, it seems to me much more that there was a, a horrible crime. Very brave women came forward. And then there was actually quite a broad consensus across society that this was wrong. So I, I'm not really, see, I'm not sure if I see sort of radical movements in the driving seat as, as you seem to. Well, I think, first of all, women and people of color have been making, have been trying to use the formal avenues for complaints all the time, like throughout, like historically. So it's not like there's suddenly been this groundswell of complaints that there wasn't before. Like there have been consistent formal complaints placed. There's just no institution that's actually there to receive them and do something meaningful with them. I think that what the way that movements and sort of community groups make change is that these big moments happen, such as the Sarah Everard murder, which for many reasons was able to to kind of gain legibility within the press. But you need to have those pre-existing movements and structures um, in order to actually mean that when those moments happen, there is an analysis and there is an understanding and a language that can kind of come to, to the forefront. And these aren't all just radical groups. A lot of the time, these are, you know, groups like Forefront, groups like the Friends and Family, the UFFC campaign. These are campaigns of like people who have had family members abused and killed by the police that have been doing a lot of the drudgery and a lot of the work to actually produce the reports, to produce the research, to produce the analysis, that then when the moment strikes, we have the tools to actually talk about what's going on rather than leaving it all to the police to actually, you know, explain to us what's happening. And so a lot of the time, you know, movement work is not like you don't necessarily, they're not celebrities, like they're not people who we can name and we can say like, oh, this person, you know, did this tweet and it was, and it went viral. So it had an impact. It's like this kind of movement is about raising consciousness in the communities and groups of people that are actually impacted and also by providing spaces of healing and help when harm is by the police is actually experienced. And also meaning that when we have these flashpoint moments, there is an organized movement, like the Sisters Uncut protest in the wake of the Sarah Everard murder was a really key flashpoint in actually shaping our, the imagination and the understanding of what's going on and understanding that this is a systemic problem. That Sisters Uncut demonstration and the knock-on effects of that, you know, whether it's being quoted in the press or whether it's, you know, taking to the streets, whether it's doing that drudgery background work of like, you know, the administrative work of organizing and the exhausting of those bureaucratic channels and the appeals and all of these things. That was a key way of pushing in that moment away from this, this lone wolf narrative to what we have now, which is this is a systemic problem within, within the police. So you know, I, I don't think that that's why I say that the pushing on the ground made that moment into the politically salient moment that it kind of is now and allowed us to draw a broader analysis than, say, just the police would would, would have. Yeah, I suppose I, I think there's a bit of a false binary here between the police's analysis and then an analysis which says policing itself is the problem. I mean, there's a middle ground, which, which is where I think most people are at, which is that they want the police to try and stop crime. And they want the police to not commit crimes themselves and they want them to weed out dodgy coppers when they're there. It just seems like you're, you're making a bit of a false dichotomy there between we take the police at their word or we abolish them. And I mean, in terms of movements, yes, yeah, Sisters Uncut had a role in organizing that. There was also Reclaim the Streets or Reclaim the Night. I think they were Reclaim the Streets, weren't they? Fairly liberal group who's basically saying, yeah, please solve some crimes and stop committing them. 
Well, I think that the the narrative that the police would have liked to push is this is a a one-person lone wolf thing. I think that the pushback, that there's an institutional problem with policing, meant that forced them to have to say, okay, actually, no, this is like a systemic problem within our police force. Still within the boundaries of, as you said, we need a police force because we think that policing is the best way to prevent harm in society and to protect us. But, you know, there is a systemic and cultural problem that we can address internally. Obviously, the radical position says, well, when you have like an institution that's like based on, you know, patriarchal violence and that is, you know, based on giving people state backed, you know, unquestionable power, when you create a really unequal society and criminalize, you know, like entire communities, when you create a society like that, having just like this threat of incarceration and this threat of like, violence isn't actually going to solve the problems that are largely born out of social and economic issues. So like the middle ground there is probably like, okay, this isn't just a lone wolf issue. There's a systemic cultural problem within the police. But even that is a win because it's a step beyond the lone wolf narrative, which was what the Met Police had originally come out with. Like the the original sort of like language that was used was around, you know, this was a guy, he was, you know, not, he he wasn't on the beat. He wasn't like, he was, he was off duty. There was this real attempt to kind of distance themselves. That was the narrative in the early stages. And now, even the fact that there is this idea that, no, this exists like kind of at every stage of policing, that is something that even the police have had to admit. The difference between, say, me and that position is that I don't think that you can weed that out. I think it's cult, it's like culturally embedded in what policing itself is. But even that, like the fact that we pulled the discourse there is is a win, 100%. Like, and the recognition that there is a system, cultural problem, a systemic problem within policing. It's just the question of whether you can get rid of that without getting rid of the policing. That's the thing that, you know, we haven't got to yet. But I would still say that that was a, a win for, for the, you know, for the movements that are organizing around, around the police. Let's go straight to our next story. Rishi Sunak had a difficult PMQs this week. That's because everyone knows his party chair avoided paying millions of pounds in tax and Sunak still hasn't sacked him. Does the Prime Minister agree that any politician who seeks to avoid the taxes they owe in this country is not fit to be in charge of taxpayer money? Well, Mr. Speaker, I'm pleased to make my position on this matter completely clear to the House. The issues, the issues in question occurred before I was Prime Minister. With regard, with regard to the appointment, with regard to the appointment of the Minister without portfolio, the usual appointments process was followed. No issues. No issues were raised with me when he was appointed to his current role. And since I commented on this matter last week, more information has come forward. And that is why I have asked the independent advisor to look into the matter. Now, I obviously can't prejudge the outcome of that, but it is right. But it is right that we fully investigate this matter and establish all the facts. No one told me the guy who I made chair had avoided millions of tax. How can you expect me to have done anything about it? 
Well, if no one told you, maybe that's the problem. And maybe he should have told you because Nadeem Zahawi knew about it, right? Nadeem Zahawi has known about it ever since he was chancellor because we know that's when he came to this agreement to pay back the money to HMRC, including the penalty. So normally when you you know, hire someone to a significant role in politics, you're going to sit them down and saying, is there anything I should know, by the way? You know, you know, I'm giving you a very high profile job here. So there will be people, you know, raking through your personal details. Is there a scandal that's about to come out? And if Nadim Zahawi said, no, 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 everything's completely fine, then he was lying. If he knew that he had paid a multi-million pound um, bill to, to HMRC while he was chancellor. So that to me would be probably reason alone to sack the guy. It all came across as incredibly weak from the prime minister. Let's see what Starmer came back with. He avoided the question. I think any, anybody watching would think it's fairly obvious that someone who seeks to avoid tax can't also be in charge of tax. Yet, for some reason, the Prime Minister can't bring himself to say that or even acknowledge the question. Now, last week, the Prime Minister told this House that the chair of the Tory party had addressed his tax affairs in full and there was nothing to add. This week, after days of public pressure, the Prime Minister now says there are serious questions to answer. What changed? Prime Minister, Mr Speaker, I know know he reads from these prepared sheets, but he should listen to what I actually say. Since I commented on this matter last week, more information, including a statement, including a statement by the Minister Without Portfolio has entered the public domain, which is why it's right that we do establish the facts. And, and Mr Speaker, let me, let, me take, let me take a step back. Let me take a step back. Now, of course, of course, of course, the politically expedient thing to do would be for me, would be for me to have said that this matter must have been resolved by Wednesday at noon. But I believe in proper due process. That's why, that's why I appointed an independent advisor, and that's why the independent advisor is doing his job. But the opposition can't have it both ways. The shadow leader, his, also his party chair, both urged me and the government to appoint an independent advisor. And now he objects to that independent advisor doing their job. It's simple political opportunism, and everyone can see through it. Again, he says new information emerged in the past week. And again, we can ask, why weren't you told that information in the first place? It also goes without saying, you don't really need an independent advisor to tell you that being fined for millions in unpaid tax should be disqualifying for someone having a high-level job in government. Also worth remembering, this independent advisor is someone appointed by Rishi Sunak who reports to Rishi Sunak. They're not particularly independent. (laughs) They're they're his advisor, right? independent and advisor shouldn't really go together because if, if you employed the guy and he's only reporting to you, this that, that doesn't strike me as a particularly independent role and it's not. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's a bit of a whitewash here. Let's look at the final back and forth at PMQs. We all know why the Prime Minister was reluctant to ask his party chair questions about family finances and tax avoidance. <laughs> but but he, his... His failure, his failure to sack him, when the whole country can see what's going on, shows how hopelessly weak he is. 
A prime minister overseeing chaos, overwhelmed at every turn. He can't say when ambulances will get to heart attack victims again. He can't say when the prison system will keep streets safe again. He can't even deal with tax avoiders in his own cabinet. Is he starting to wonder if this job is just too big for him? Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, the difference between him and me is that I stand by my values and my principles even when it is difficult. When I disagree fundamentally with the previous Prime Minister, I resigned from the government. But for four, but for four, but for four long years, he sat next to the member for Islington North. When anti-Semitism ran rife, when his predecessor sided with our opponents, that's what's weak, Mr Speaker. He has no principles and just petty politics. I don't feel too much sympathy for the Labour Party when smearing their previous leader comes back to bite them at PNQs. But obviously, Rishi Sunak, I think to most people, will have come off the worse there. Dahlia, why hasn't he fired Nadim Zahawi? I mean, if I was Rishi Sunak, regardless of politics, I would have fired the guy. It seems like a it seems like an odd decision that he's kept him in post. I mean, I guess we've already scraped that barrel of, you know, what's in the Conservative Party and there's just not much left at the bottom of it, really. So he's got to hold on to to, to what he's got. But uh, I guess, you know, it, it would be kind of odd for Sunak to, to fire Zahawi because of, you know, dodgy tax dealings or, you know, tax mischievery, because let's not forget, uh, Sunak accrued a lot of his wealth because his wife claimed in partly because his wife was claiming non-dom status despite being a resident in the UK for for quite a while. Now, obviously, it's slightly different because Sunak's wife was never fined, um, you know, because her claiming non-dom status wasn't technically violating the rules. It was just making a very, you know, morally bankrupt and selfish choice. You know, she she chose to use this, um, not her non-dom status for tax purposes, when, you know, she could have actually and should have you paid all of the tax that she, you know, all of her tax to the UK government. But obviously, you know, the legal structures of our, of our tax system, especially when it comes to things like non-DOM status, like tax offshoring, you know, they are deliberately designed to help the already very wealthy, to help them basically hide their money from the government, to help them not pay their fair share of tax. So just because, you know, Sunak's uh, wife's dealings were were legal doesn't mean you know just because it's legal within our existing tax system doesn't mean that it that that it's right. So when they are doing something that is clearly damaging to us and is clearly not okay, them saying well I did nothing illegal is not a sign for we shouldn't take from that that like oh okay everything was okay and above board. What we should take from that is you know our tax system. And systems of enforcement surrounding tax need to be urgently overhauled and reoriented to actually work towards getting as much tax as possible from the wealthy and making them pay their fair share of tax rather than helping them hide their money for for tax purposes. So yeah, so for Zahawi, it is slightly different because he did violate the very few rules that apply to rich people when it comes to, to tax. But I think, you know, the idea of him being, of this being just a careless mistake is obviously complete nonsense. Like Nadim Zahawi isn't like, you know, 
sitting on the 30th of January, like filling out his self-assessment form, you know, he has probably several very high-powered, very knowledgeable accountants who I'm pretty sure are aware of the rules. What I think might have happened, allegedly, obviously I don't want to get in trouble here, but a trick that a lot of rich people often use is to create layers and layers of bureaucracy and complexity through this kind of network of, you know, shell companies and offshoring, offshore companies, so that it becomes very difficult for the state to um, prove wrongdoing and to kind of wade through all of this very complex stuff that they've kind of built around their money. And in the case of most rich people, it works out for them because they're able to kind of fly under the radar. It's too expensive. It's too laborious. It's too difficult to kind of get to the root of where their money is because of this kind of structure that they've created around it. And so more often than not, they kind of get away with it. What might have happened here, allegedly, we don't know, of course, is that when you become a high-level government minister, it becomes a little bit more difficult to fly under the radar because suddenly people are very interested in what's going on. So I think in this case, maybe he he flew a little close to the sun, but this is how the rich people how rich people hold on to their wealth. This is how, this is why we live in such an unequal society, because our systems, which are supposed to be about pooling resources so that everyone has a basic standard of living, have been chipped away at so much that now they are more heavily designed, more resources are put towards helping rich people hold on to their wealth and keep it away from that public purse. And we're all suffering the consequences of that. Because of course, the, the ultimate kick in the teeth here is the fact that Zahawi and Sunak and all these people are the same people who are turning around to us and saying, well, we can't give nurses pay rises because there's not enough money. There's just not enough money to give every nurse a pay rise. Well, maybe if you and your classmates, you know, paid some of your tax, then maybe there would be enough money to, to give nurses a pay rise. So, I mean, it's just disgusting all like through and through. And like, I guess for Sunak, it's like, how can I fire someone who's done something that's not that far away from what me and everyone else in my my position, in my kind of class position is is kind of getting up to, even though there are differences in the technicality of how wrong each of them were by the rules. But ultimately, both of them are doing the same thing, which is unfairly withholding tax from the public who are entitled to that tax because we create their wealth. And um, Nadim Zahawi's defense, you know, he was gifting the shares to his father and like any loyal son, he did so via an offshore tax haven in an investment vehicle in Gibraltar. That's how we all give family gifts in this country, isn't it? Let's go straight on to our final story. A lot of detail in this one. We'll get through it quickly. Richard Sharp was appointed chair of the BBC in 2021, handpicked for the role by Boris Johnson. It's since emerged that the process might have been a little fishy. That's because in the weeks before being handed the top job, Sharp helped to secure a loan of up to £800,000 for the poverty-stricken Prime Minister. It seems that Johnson was struggling to make ends meet on his £165,000 salary and needed a helping hand. We've all been there. But things are about to get even worse for Richard Sharp. That's because it's now been revealed that he's at the centre of a second BBC scandal. The story was broken by John Sopel on the News Agents podcast. So let me talk about something that has never been uh, published as far as I know. 
uh, before about Richard Sharp and doing the job as chairman of the BBC. The chairman of the BBC has always been someone who has been sort of away from the editorial control, who liaises with the director general. Last year, the BBC was appointing a new director of news, the most critical job for the upholding of impartiality in the corporation. And Richard Sharp insisted that he be on the interview panel to select who the next director of news should be. So someone who had given £400,000 to the Conservative Party was involved in the decision-making on who the new head of news would be. And at the time, I am told, there was enormous disquiet at the top of the BBC from people who've been around news and editorial policy for a very long time that this could happen. And I think that there are serious ramifications about that. And also, it seems to be in some conflict with what Richard Sharp said to the select committee when he was talking about how his role would be as chair of the BBC. He's questioned here from the select committee hearing by Julian Knight. Arguably, if the chair saw herself or himself as a, an editor, there's an element of overlap and, uh, and potential for overreach. So he saw the potential for overreach, but did it anyway? And uh, to make matters worse, the news agent asked former BBC chair Diane Coyle to give her view. It's my understanding, firm understanding, that he was on the selection panel for who the new director of news of the BBC should be. Uh, what do you think of that? He should never have done that. Why? Because of that need to maintain the separation between the, um, uh, the, the structures that do plug the BBC into the life of the nation and the politics of the nation and independent editorial decisions. So to summarise, Boris Johnson's old Tory donor-mate and financial fixer is appointed as chair of the BBC. He claims to understand that to protect the impartiality of the BBC, the chair can't get involved in editorial decisions. But then he forces himself onto the panel that was selecting the most important editorial job at the BBC. That's the head of news, which just happens to be the job most likely to impact his Tory pals. Of course, Sharp denies any wrongdoing. We might want to ask, though, what's the mood over at the BBC? It doesn't look great for them. And according to a source in The Times, staff in the newsroom are, quote, mutinous. And they report that Sharp has hired a crisis communications specialist to help him deal with the drama. Let's hope for his sake they're worth the money. What kind of broken economy produces a job title called crisis communications specialist? Just like, <laughs> just such a funny title. But yeah, I mean, this is a really kind of, difficult one that brings up a lot of things that I find when talking about the BBC and the kind of direction that the BBC is going in. Because obviously this is like an incredibly explicit and problematic and worrying violation of what we are told the BBC is there to do. And this kind of separation of structures in order to maintain this idea of like rigor and integrity and, and obviously that magic word impartiality. But obviously, when it comes to the BBC, this kind of embeddedness between, you know, the BBC and the British state, it's not unprecedented. Like, it's kind of always been 
there. The BBC has always cleaved towards the establishment. It's always had this symbiotic relationship with the government, with the state more broadly. There are so many like meta studies, um, you know, studies or studies that have been done that show that there is this kind of revolving door between, you know, its editorial direction and people in establishment and, you know, establishment political and financial class. You know, that's disproportionately where their sources come from. It, it's kind of, there's always been far more overlap in that relationship than we would like to believe and that, you know, our ideal of what the BBC is kind of tells us there is. And essentially that the, the impartiality thing is like in many ways a self-serving kind of myth. Um, it doesn't really exist. I'm not sure it can really exist in an institution like the BBC, which is which is a state broadcaster. And this is, again, you know, a really extreme example of a, of a kind of contradiction that has always existed within the BBC to have someone that closely connected to a prime minister, basically quid pro quo, being handed this really like influential role in the BBC. And then to not only hold that role, but to actually extend the reach of that role beyond what it already had been. Because whilst we can acknowledge all of the problems that have historically existed in the BBC and that this idea that, you know, they really have the capacity to truly hold, you know, speak truth to power and to have impartiality when they are part of the state and they have this shared connection um, with so many establishment figures. At the same time, obviously, you know, the marketization of the BBC that has been happening in the past 15 years has made this problem significantly worse. It's made the sort of small C and big C conservativeness, the conservative character of the BBC, even more intense. It's it's made it even harder for the odd, you know, genuinely critical and creative media content and political journalism to kind of squeeze through the cracks in the way that historically it's been able to. So despite that historic problem and that kind of that ongoing frustration that progressives will have with the BBC, there is still a sense that we're losing something and that there is there is a that throwing our hands up and and handing it wholesale over to market forces and to such explicit government corruption is this really deep loss. And I think it becomes then really difficult to, okay, well, how do we cultivate? It's not like the NHS, which at one point like actually did what it was meant to do and genuinely, you know, was provided an essential service to people. The BBC has always had this problem of cleaving towards the establishment and not being completely transparent in the overlaps between it, both in terms of its cultural and social makeup, but also in terms of its financial makeup and the, the forces that it's supposed to hold to account. So at least it's difficult to kind of cultivate a desire and a, and a, a campaign, as it were, to protect that. But then at the same time, the fact that we're losing the tiny shred of what we have, of what the BBC was, you know, that tiny shred that was really useful, that did give us things like, you know, Ways of Seeing by John Berger and all of these amazing critical and, and political imagination and things that really expanded our political imagination. You know, there's a kind of tension there and it really feels like something really profound is being lost. And that's, that's incredibly, incredibly sad.
your talk of contradictions there reminds me of a conversation we had on a previous story. So I, I agree there is a, an internal tension with the BBC. You've got a public sector broadcaster, which is inherently, I think, always going to have a tendency to be a little bit too cosy to the state, to not be completely independent of government. At the same time, we don't want to get rid of it because the alternative is worse, which is giving power just purely to corporations. So we, we recognize there is this internal tension, but the response isn't to get rid of the whole damn thing. Now, I suppose my approach to policing is, is, is somewhat similar. You've got this internal tension. If you give a select group of people authority to enforce the law, there's going to be a, you know, a tendency for them to get a little bit unaccountable and out of control. So how do you stop that? You, you recognize the tension is there and you try and militate it or militate against it, right? So with the BBC, probably we need some more independent structures in between the government and the BBC with the cops. I mean, we need wholesale radical reform, but I wouldn't say we'd get rid of the whole thing. Briefly, Dahlia, what do you think of my analogy there? Well, I think the problem is that, A, you can set up alternative structures to the BBC and opt out of the BBC in a sense, whereas like you can't really opt out of being policed. And also like the BBC isn't like putting people in cages and, you know, stopping and searching black people and, you know, arresting and incarcerating people with mental illness and sexually assaulting people. So I guess it's like the urge to get rid of that is kind of a bit more, I guess, clear to me um, in terms of the internal conse consequences of that contradiction are much, to me, kind of much graver. And you can't set up alternative structures and alternative ways of existing because the whole point of the police is that everyone is subject to it. Whereas I guess the BBC is kind of one of many different media institutions that you're not subject to in the same way. Well, I suppose you can't opt out if you want a TV. And also, I mean, you could say that the BBC have an easier job than the police who have got to try and, you know, stop crimes happening, just giving out information is what the BBC does. Anyway, that could be a whole show to itself. We're going to end um, with just a little more detail um, when it comes to this BBC story, because it's not the end of the Richard Sharp saga, what we've told you already, because it's also emerged that the panel that appointed him chair of the BBC included two Tory cronies. Now, first, there was Catherine Baxendale. She's a former Tesco executive who was shortlisted to be a Tory parliamentary candidate in 2017 and who gave £50,000 to the party. Then there was Blondell Clough. She's the wife of the North Sea oil tycoon Algie Clough, who used to be chair of Johnson's former employer, The Spectator. Blondell is also a Boris Johnson fan, having described the former PM as, quote, inspirational and unifying. The panel Choosing the BBC chair had four people on it, three of whom were supposed to be independent, and yet half of them were Tories, appointing another Tory to the job. That's our closing thought for the day. Dahlia, it's been a very interesting show this evening. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I mean, the horrible start with that story, but... Yeah, we've really unpacked the state today, haven't we? <laughs> mm, really unpacked the state. Um, who'll put it back together again? We're going to wrap up there. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.